It's good to be with you, church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're in the third week of our vision series titled, This Matters. Vision series is something that we do as a church at least once a year to talk about the things that we deeply value as a church, to talk about the things that we believe make up the DNA of the Austin Stone. And last week, we uh, talked about the importance of the Word of God, and the week before that, we talked about the importance of biblical community. We live in a world that's bombarding us by telling us this matters and that matters. Well, these are the things that truly matter. These are the things that truly matter for the believer. And this week, we're going to be talking about prayer. Prayer absolutely matters. And I think we all know that. I think if you've been a Christian and been in church for any length of time, we've heard lots of teachings and sermons on prayer. We've heard really good sermons on prayer even. And we've all felt what it's like to feel convicted, to walk away going, man, I really need to pray more. Um, Church, let me ask you a question. How's that going? How's that been going? Could it be said of you that you're a person of prayer? I had to ask myself this question this week. Could it be said of me that I'm a person of prayer? Yes, if it means that I pray a little bit before I read my Bible. Yes, if it means I pray before meals. But no, if it means that I cast all of my worries and anxieties upon him. No, if it means that I pray without ceasing, without losing heart, steadfast in my prayers. No, if it means that I shout out to him, even cry out in agony, my God, my Father, not my will, but yours be done. No, if it means that. But yet something inside of us tells us that's the way we ought to pray. That's what our prayer should look like, but it doesn't. Why not? We all know that we ought to pray, but many times we just don't. Well, only one person can change our hearts towards prayer, and it's not me. Only God can produce an enduring obedience in our hearts, not any good sermon. And so before we start talking about prayer, let's actually pray together. Let's actually pray together in the quietness of your seat, wherever you're seated, let's pray and ask God that God would make you a a person devoted to prayer. Let's ask God that he would make us a church that prays without ceasing, that doesn't lose heart and is steadfast towards prayer. And I'm actually going to give you a good length of time to pray, not just 15 seconds. I'm going to give you three minutes to pray. Three whole minutes to pray. We're going to get crazy at church and actually pray, all right? Can we go three minutes? Let's pray three minutes. I'll be up here praying as well, and afterwards, I'll bring us back. Let's pray.
Amen. So how was that, church? My, my hope is that for many of you, it was a sweet and intimate time meeting with your Heavenly Father. But how was it for others of you? Really difficult, maybe uncomfortable, and even awkward. Jesus said, my house will be a house of prayer. Not a house of singing, not a house of preaching, but a house of prayer. When he described this body, when he described his household, he said, my house will be a house of prayer. And we struggle to do it even for three minutes. I'm not judging you. I'm with you on this. I'm over here like staring at my iPhone. What, three, two minutes, two and a half minutes. I'm struggling here with you. And I would venture to say that out of all the things that God has commanded us to do, that prayer may be the most difficult to obey. When we go to pray, the universe seems to turn against us. We go to pray, God, I love you. I want to meet with you. And you hear ding, ding. You get a text message and you're like, I need to go check what that says. You, you meet with God and say, God, I love you and I, I want to hear from you today. And man, that ceiling fan is really dusty. <laughs> I, I, that's driving me crazy right now. I really need to clean it. And you haven't cleaned your ceiling fan in 17 years, but you decided to pray and that's why you got to go do it. Everything seems to go against us. We're so easily distracted when we go to pray. You try to focus on loving the king of the universe for three minutes and you find out how weak you are. You find out how weak you are. This exercise of praying like we did, we did it at a prayer seminar at a uh, partner meeting and we got crazy then, did it for five minutes. Five minutes and and I thought people were going to lose their minds. We almost had a riot. And, um, and we asked the question afterwards, what was your five minutes of prayer like? And these were some of their answers. See if they resonate. It was awkward. I wondered when it was going to end. It felt overwhelming, and it was hard to be still. It was hard to stay focused. My mind kept wondering. It felt futile. I was speaking to him, but I don't think he's really going to answer. I fell asleep. I don't see the point. He knows everything already. I don't want to bother him. It feels like I'm trying to talk with God, but he doesn't want to talk with me. Can you relate with any of those statements? How is it that we can be completely and absolutely convinced to believe that we ought to pray? And even earnestly desire to pray, but still not pray. How can that be? What's the problem? Well, it's countless, right? We can name our problem after problem, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But I want to talk to you about two main problems I think we have. Two main problems. First main problem being, I don't think he hears me. How many of you feel that? You go to pray... You just don't think he hears you. Second main problem, I don't think it accomplishes anything. I don't think my prayers are doing anything. How many of you feel that? You go and ask God for things and with really no expectation that he's going to do it. But you're just asking because you think you should. I don't really think my prayers accomplish anything. Let's address the first one. I don't feel like he hears me. 
There's a moment in the scriptures where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. They hear Jesus praying and something about hearing the way Jesus prays, I think made them think, wow, how can I pray like that? I want to be taught to be able to pray like that. Have you ever been around somebody that prays like that? They start praying and you're like, man, I I thought I knew how to pray, but apparently I don't. Maybe you were sitting by them a while ago and they're just praying and they're going at it and you're like, man, I was done like two minutes and 29 seconds ago. How do they pray like that? Well, the disciples hear Jesus praying and they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like that. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, pray in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We know it as the Lord's Prayer, right? And how does it start? Our Father. Have you ever stopped and heard that and have been shocked by it? You know, the Lord's Prayer is so familiar to us sometimes. We've heard it so many times. We've even said it so many times that we just kind of go across the words without thinking about it. But the first thing that Jesus decides to teach his disciples when they ask him, Lord, teach us how to pray is this. When you pray, pray in this way, our Father. That when you approach the God, the God of the universe, yes, he's the God of the universe, but he is your Father. You're his child. That's the first and foremost thing we have to know, we have to experience. That he's our Father, that we're his child, we have to know and experience sonship. And I say we have to know it and experience it because many of us would know it, but we're not experiencing it. Because if I were to ask you, what is it like to be a Christian? What is it like to be a child of God? You may say something like, well, it's absolutely amazing. I was a sinner. I was in rebellion against God, but God saved me. He saved me. He sent his son for me. And Jesus came and he lived a life that I could never live. He died the death that I should have died. So I'm no longer his enemy. Now I'm his child. I'm his child. And I say, well, that is really amazing. Tell me what it's like to now meet with this heavenly father of yours. What is it like to meet with him and talk with him? And you say, you know, it's really awkward. I always wonder when our time is going to end. I want to meet with him, but it feels like he doesn't want to meet with me. I say some things to him, but just feels like he's not hearing me. Do you see the massive discrepancy between the way that we would describe our sonship, but the way that we're experiencing our sonship? Do you see it? We are his kid, but we don't feel like we're his kid when we're meeting with him. But you are his kid. And Jesus says, this is the first and foremost thing that you have to know in prayer. You're going to God. You're going to God who is your father. Pray in this way, our father. You know, one of the most incredible things that God is doing in our church is that he's placing it in the heart of our people to go and adopt. 
to take the child that has no home, to take the child that has no family, many of them living in destitute conditions, and to bring them home into your own family, bring them home into your own home, and adopt them to be your own child. Just this last week, one of our pastors, Stu, and his family, after waiting three long, exhausting, grueling years, they were finally able to bring their son home, Kelly, from Haiti. Isn't that a cool picture? It's provided to us by the Archibald Project. It's a really cool organization that documents adoptions to encourage other families to do the same. And there are so many adopting families in our church now. One of the things that I see whenever I get to hang out with them, one of the things that I see in the parents is that in the way that they would touch and kiss and hold their adopted child, they do it in the exact same way as they would touch and hold and kiss their biological children. What I see in the parents is that in the way that they love and care for their adopted child, they do it in the exact same way that they would love and care for their biological children. And we look at that and we think, you know, there's something really right about that, right? There's something really right about that. And let me tell you something, church. If you're in Christ today, you are God's adopted child. You are God's adopted child. Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, pray in this way, our Father, our Father. He's saying God is his Father, but he's your Father too. He's saying I'm his child, but you're his child too. And if earthly parents are able to do what is right in treating their adopted children in the exact same way as their natural children, our God is able to do it incomprehensibly more. He's able to do it incomprehensibly more. And so when you look at the scriptures and you see Jesus praying, you get the sense that immediately God is bending his ear down to earth and he's paying attention to what Jesus is praying, right? When you go to the scriptures and you see Jesus praying, you get the sense that God is saying, what is my son saying? What does he need from me right now? What does he need for me to do for him right now? You get that sense, don't, we? don't you? John 11, Jesus prays. He says, Father, I thank you that you hear me, and I know that you always hear me. When Jesus prayed, God heard. And he always heard. And he was ready to explode into action. Why? Why? Because that was his child because that was his son, that was his kid. And church, you are God's child through adoption. You are God's child through adoption. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. What does that mean? If you are children, then you are heirs. 
heirs of God and your co-heirs with Christ. Not a second class heir. Not a lesser inferior heir. You're a co-heir. You're a co-heir. And since you are a co-heir with Jesus, you get what Jesus gets. You get what Jesus gets. You know, we think about it sometimes and we think, yeah, I know God loves me, but he really, really loves Jesus. Don't we think that sometimes? Yeah, I know he loves me, but he really, really loves Jesus because that's his son. Co-heir, not lesser heir, not inferior heir. What God is offering you is not a second-class sonship. You are his child. You are co-heirs with Jesus. You get what Jesus gets. And so when you face this problem in prayer and you're feeling, I just don't think he hears me. I don't think he cares. I want to meet with him, but I don't feel like he wants to meet with me. It's simply not true. Couldn't be further from the truth. And if you believe it's true, you're saying something about God. You're saying something about God. You're saying that God treats his adopted children differently. But our God is not an evil father. He's a good father. And at a great price, he has adopted you as his child. And you are now a co-heir with Jesus. So you get what Jesus gets. So think about this. Each and every single time you pray, God immediately bends his ear down to earth and he's paying attention to you. He is. He's paying attention to you. Each and every time you go to him and you say, Father, my God, Daddy, he is immediately saying, what is my son saying? What is my daughter saying? What do they need? What do they need for me to do for them right now? Why? Why? Because you're his kid. You're his child. You're a co-heir with Jesus. You get what Jesus gets. He met Jesus in prayer, and he's going to meet you in prayer. Our God feels towards you exactly the same way he feels towards Jesus. And we've heard that before. But have you experienced it? Have you embraced that truth? Have you felt that when you go to God in prayer? That he's your father. That he responds to you in prayer just the same way that he responds to Jesus in prayer. Because you're his kid. The second main problem we face in praying is that we don't feel like it accomplishes anything. We don't feel like it does anything. You may be thinking, you know, I've, I've prayed before. I've asked God for things and nothing's happened. So I gave up on prayer. You may be thinking, well, God's sovereign, right? He's going to do anything that he's going to do. And so what difference does it make that I pray? It doesn't really matter, right? Yes, they matter. And I want to show you what happens to the prayers that we pray. Did you know that when you pray, your prayers go somewhere? They go somewhere. It's not, it's not just go, disappearing in thin air. Your prayers physically go somewhere. Where does it go? What does it do? What happens to it? Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who 
who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Well, what does that mean? Well, without getting into the details of what's happening in the book of Revelation, what we see here is that there's a scroll that God has in the heavenlies. And the opening of the scroll represents the unfolding of the end of history, ultimately leading to the return of Jesus. But the scroll is closed up. And it's sealed with seven seals across its opening. But the seals must be opened for God's ultimate purpose of judgment and redemption to occur. God's seals must be broken for Jesus to finally return. And at first there was great weeping in heaven because no one was found worthy to open the seals. But then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is that? It's Jesus, right? And why is Jesus able to open the seals and make God's ultimate plan for judgment and redemption to unfold in human history? Verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And isn't this absolutely incredible that that John is being, uh, being given a vision into what will bring about the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan to judge and redeem? He's being given... A vision, the purpose for which God created the universe, the purpose for which why God created us, the purpose for which why God sent his son, it's all about to be fulfilled. It's all about to happen. And as Jesus breaks open each seal, one by one, we're getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus. And we get to the seventh and final seal, Jesus breaks it open, and it says that the heavens are silenced. The heavens are silenced. And then we see an angel of God coming to the throne of God with a bowl. And that bowl is filled with the prayers of the saints. That bowl is filled with our prayers, all the prayers that we've prayed. That bowl is filled with the prayers of the saints throughout human history and it's burning like an incense before God and the angel pours it out on the earth and it brings about the consummation of the kingdom of God. Let me read to you what Pastor John Piper says about this text. What we have in this text is an explanation of what has happened to the millions upon millions of prayers over the last 2,000 years as the saints have cried out again and again, thy kingdom come, thy kingdom come. 
Not one of these prayers prayed in faith has been ignored. Not one is lost or forgotten. Not one has been ineffectual or pointless. They have all been gathering on the altar before the throne of God. And the time will come when God will command his holy angel to pour it out on the world to bring all of God's great and holy purposes to, to completion, which means that the consummation of history will be owing to the supplication of the saints who cry to God day and night, not one God-exalting prayer has ever been in vain. Make no mistake, no prayer prayed in faith will ever go to waste. They are gathering on God's altar until the appointed time. Think about this. If God were to come to you and he would say, ask of me anything. Ask of me anything right now and I will do it for you. What if God said that? Ask of me anything and I'll do it for you right now. What would you ask him? I think you would think about this and think about that and hopefully you will come to one conclusion. Hopefully you'll come to one conclusion. I think the most thoughtful Christian would think about this and think about that. I think they would come to this single conclusion. God, I have a request of you. Let your kingdom come. Will you let Jesus return right now? Right now. After all, that's what Jesus taught us to pray, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. We should be praying for the kingdom to come. Church, are we praying that? Are we praying thy kingdom come? Why should we be praying that? Because we just saw that it's through the prayers of God's people. It's through our prayers that the kingdom will come. God has ordained it that his kingdom will come through the prayers of his people. And think about this. Out of anything and everything that God could do in this world, out of everything that God could do in human history, what's the greatest thing that is left for God to do? For Jesus to return, right? For Jesus to return. And what we see, this glorious thing that we see in Revelation chapter 8 is that the greatest work of God left to be done in human history happens through, solely through the prayers of his people. Not apart from it, not without it. God has ordained it only through the prayers of his people that this great work will be accomplished. And so I can't help but to conclude that this is the way that God accomplishes all of his great works. All of his great works. Whatever he has determined to do in human history, he does through the prayers of his children. So when we pray for any given thing, our prayers go into a bowl. And if anybody else prays for that same given thing, those prayers go into that bowl. And in God's appointed time, he's going to look at the bowl and he's going to say, it's full now. Let's pour it out. And what God desires will happen in answer to those prayers. And I think that's what happened to Kelly when he was finally able to come home. Three years. Three years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having a child across the ocean and not being able to bring him home? For three years, Stu and Kimberly, they prayed, 
prayers of, of weeping before God. God, will you please let Kelly come home? And God took those prayers and placed them in a bowl. And, and their three other children, they would pray, God, will you please let our brother Kelly come home? We want him to be in this house. We want him to be in this room. We want him to sleep in that bed. Will you please let Kelly come home, God? And he took the prayers of those little children and he placed them in the bowl. And the rest of the church family that knew what was happening, we would pray, God, will you please work in the Haitian government? Will you please process the papers and let everything go smoothly? Will you please bring Kelly home, God? He took our prayers and placed them in the bowl. And each time that we would pray, and nothing seemed to be happening, each time we would pray and we would get some bad news and Kelly would still be stuck in Haiti, we would be tempted to think, see, our prayers didn't matter. What difference does it make that we pray? It's not really accomplishing anything. I think you've all felt that before in the prayers that you have prayed. You're asking, you're asking, you're asking, and nothing seems to be happening. You're tempted to think, see, it doesn't matter. It doesn't count. It's not accomplishing anything. But what was happening in the heavenlies? Those prayers were being put into a bowl. Each and every single prayers were being poured into a bowl. And after three years, God looked at that bowl and he said, it's full now. Pour it out. Let Kelly come home. Let Kelly come home. Your prayers matter, and it's accomplishing great things. God has purposed the prayers of his children to accomplish all of his great works. No prayer prayed in faith is ever wasted. It's never prayed in vain. By way of application, I want to address one of the wrong conclusions that we could come to from all of this, right? One of the wrong conclusions that we could come to is, Okay, so then whatever we want, just keep praying, keep putting in that bowl, and when the bowl is full, then I get what I want, right? Well, is that true? Is that true? Not necessarily. Because prayer isn't incantation. It's not some hocus-pocus magic. It's not the summoning of some great power to manipulate him into doing what we want. Well, if it's not that, then what is it? Uh, Prayer is speaking with your heavenly father, remember? It's meeting with, meeting that happens between a father and his child. And all parents know, if you're going to be a good parent anyways, do you say yes to all the things that your kids ask for? No, why not? Because your kids will ask you for some stupid stuff, right? You don't say yes to them all the time. Only a bad, negligent father will say yes to everything his kids want. And our God is neither. He's a good and perfect heavenly father who knows exactly what his kids need. And so again, whenever you think about prayer, you have to think about it in terms of a parent-child relationship. Always keep going back to that parent-child relationship. In the beginning, when you have your kid and your kid is born, your child is but an infant, that baby can't say a single coherent word to you, right? Baby doesn't know how to speak, can't say a single coherent word to you. Nevertheless, what do you do as a parent? You hold the baby. You kiss the baby. You feed the baby. You change the baby. Hold the baby, feed the baby, (laughs) change the baby over and over and over again, right? And what else do you do? You speak to the baby. You speak to the baby. 
until one day that baby looks at you and says what? Mama or Dada. You may be here a brand new Christian. You may be thinking, I I really don't know how to pray at all. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to begin. You don't know how to say a single coherent word to your heavenly father. But nevertheless, he's your heavenly father. And so he's going to hold you. He's going to kiss you. He's going to feed you. He's going to change you. And he's going to put his spirit in you, the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. You may not know how to pray yet, but you're watching You're looking, and as you observe him be faithful to you over and over and over again, there's going to be something inside of you that looks at the God of the universe and makes you call him Father, makes you call him Daddy. And that's the beginning of all your prayers. That's the beginning of all your prayers. But then what happens is your baby grows up and they grow into another stage of speaking with you. They start asking you or start demanding you of things, right? Give me milk, give me candy, give me your phone. And how many of our prayers look like this? Maybe we're at a place where our prayers are relegated to, God, will you give me this? God, will you give me that? And is it right for our prayers to simply be asking God for things? Is that right? Well, not necessarily. If my daughter Evie would ask me for 10 pieces of candy, I'm going to say no to her every single time, okay? I'm going to say no to her every single time, but I want her to ask me. Why? Because as I consistently say no to the things that are bad for her and consistently say yes to the things that are good for her, I'm teaching her my character. And so you may be at a stage where you're like, I don't know if I should be asking God for these things, so I'm just not going to pray. But God would prefer your wrong prayers over your no prayers. He wants your wrong prayers over your no prayers because through those wrong prayers, God's going to be teaching you his character. The things that he desires for you, the things that he doesn't desire for you. And what happens after the give me, give me stage? The why stage, right? Why is this and why is that? As kids begin to mature a little bit, They start to come out of that world of me, 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 give me, give me, give me, and they start asking about things out there. What's happening there? Why is is that happening? I don't understand. And as we keep praying and developing in our understanding and our experience of our, our sonship, our focus will start to veer away from us and we'll start asking God, God, why did that happen? God, what's... What's happening there? A little bit more maturity, right? What's happening there, God? I don't understand. I don't understand how that could be good. I don't understand how that could be glorifying to you. How could you let that happen? What's what's going on? And as any good parent would do, you explain, right? You explain knowing that many times the thing that your child is asking is beyond their ability to understand. But you explain anyways, and you say, I don't understand. I know, baby, you don't understand right now, but just trust me. And God does the same with us. And lastly, as your child continues to mature and they're speaking with you, what do they do next? They start asking you about you. 
They start asking you about you. My oldest son, Malachi, he's, he's only turning six in October, so by no means he's reached the full maturity in his relationship with me. But one of, the, one of his favorite things to ask me is, Appa, will you tell me a story about when you were a kid? Will you tell me a story about when you were a kid? In other words, will you, will you tell me something about you? I want to know something about you. He loves it when I tell him stories about me. And I think that's one of, the, one of the full maturation processes in our growing in our prayers with, with God, him being our father, we being our child, when the focus goes away from us to him being the focus. We're no longer the focus. He's the focus. And we start asking God, God, will you tell me something about you? Will you show me something about yourself? Will you show me something about your character? Will you tell me a story about something cool that you did back then? And will you tell me a story about something that you're going to do? God, will you show me yourself? And isn't that what Moses is doing when he prays, God, will you show me your glory? I want to see your face. I want to know you, God. I want to know you. And that's what God is ultimately offering us in prayer. All the stages that we talked about, where are you? Where are you? Can we ask God for some things? Absolutely. He's your good father. He's going to give you things as any good father would give good gifts to his children. Can God do some things for you? Absolutely, as any good father would serve his children. But above and beyond all that, what God is offering us in prayer is himself, himself to us as father. And when we begin to pray like that, we're saying, God, more than anything that you could give me here on earth, I want you. More than anything that you could give me here on earth, you're better. I want you, God. I want to know you. And when we meet him in prayer like this, we could say things like, whom have we in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. See what kind of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Think about that verse. See what kind of love is this that the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We are church. Let's pray together. Father, let us be shocked by that. Let us be shocked by that wonderful news, this wonderful reality that though we were once your enemies, we could come to you and call you Father. Let us be shocked by this wonderful news that when we pray, it's as though Jesus is praying. And just as we're sure that when Jesus prays, you're paying attention to him and hearing him, you always hear him. And so when we pray, we can know for sure, for certain that you always hear us because we're your kids. You've made us your kids. And so Father, Help us to live in that wonderful reality. Lord, will you make us a praying people, a people that do not cease in prayer, a people that do not lose heart in prayer, people that are steadfast in our prayers. 
Father, lead us step by step. Make us a praying people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.